Today's episode of Transform Your Workplace is brought to you by Zenium HR. Learn how leaders and HR professionals are leveraging Zenium's complete HR plus payroll solution to free themselves up so they can focus on the things that help grow their organization, grow their business. Learn more at zeniumhr.com. Today's guest is Amy Sperling, the founder and CEO of Compt. And in this episode, we're exploring a fascinating topic that has been talked about in the business world. So historically, CFOs have been seen as a natural progression to take on a CEO role. But in recent articles I've explored, there's reports that suggest that CHROs, the chief HR officer, may be better positioned to take on this top job. So I brought Amy on to help us understand why this might be the case. We'll delve into the role of a CHRO, the challenges they face, and how their unique perspective can benefit an organization as a CEO. With her experience in both financial and HR roles, Amy's the perfect person to have this conversation with. So I think you're going to really enjoy the topic and might just open up your mind about the potential of a CHRO taking over a CEO position. Without further ado, let's jump right into the discussion. Amy, it's a pleasure to have you on Transform Your Workplace. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. So I want to talk about CEOs, CHROs, and CFOs, like the, you know, the C-suite, right? Historically, CFOs have always been on a path to take on a CEO role. I just, in past times, it just seemed like that was kind of the natural progression. But an article from Fortune in November, it suggested that CHROs, the chief HR officers, might be better positioned to take on the CEO role. Why do you think that is? I think it's just been a, it's, it's been a pretty big transition. When I started my career in finance, CFOs didn't get tapped for that seat either. It was uh, the COOs were always coming from sales or from product because CFOs were, you know, the number crunchers, the back office people, and HR was tucked in under them. So they were even further removed from that seat. I think as CFOs have become more operational, they started getting the seat and getting tapped for that. And now we're seeing HR doesn't report into a CFO, which I think is fantastic. And so they have their own seat at the table. And so they have a new path to kind of taking over um, and running companies. And I think it's definitely for the best because HR shouldn't be tucked in under finance, in my opinion. Even as a finance person who loves HR, it needs to have its own seat at the table yeah. Uh, because so many of the decisions in a company need to come through that HR path. Yeah, it's great that you pointed out that HR used to be nested under the CFO position because I think organizations have always seen it as a very administrative function. Now, I think the shift has been moved to it's a strategic part of the company, and that's why that chief HR officer titles is popping up. Can you explain like what a, what is a CHRO do in terms of like how far they've come over the years? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, one, it didn't exist when I started my career and there was no such thing as a chief HR person, uh, HRO. It was that back office function. They'd make sure the payroll happened, you know, benefits renewals, maybe manage the performance management, but in a very tactical way of physically making sure forms were filled out. 
like HR now is just very, very different from that. It's looking at which markets are we going into and how are we going to staff and resource them? How are we going to stay competitive for compensation? How do we think about employee engagement? What does that mean? You know, looking really granularly at metrics and just getting out of that. You still have the compliance piece, but it's just kind of an assumed, okay, we got to do that. Whereas most of the day-to-day, it's very strategic. Can you give some examples of how like the skill set of CHRO how they, you know, interact on a regular basis and how that might drive business strategy if they were to take a CEO level position. Like if they were seen as like, you're on path to be CEO and they've got this HR background, what kind of skill sets, you know, how, how would that drive business strategy for an organization? I think there's a recognition that, I mean, in a lot of tech companies in particular, 70 to 80 to even 90% of your costs are around your, your headcount. It's around your employees. And so if you're not thinking about what's happening in that massive bucket of expense, and it's just a number, you're missing the boat here. And so that's where I think HR really brings a very different perspective to the table. Of course, you need to think about product. Of course, you need to think about sales strategy and all the things. But with the CHRO, it's really tackling like, okay, we're spending all this money on human beings. How do we actually do that in the best way possible to make sure that we can continue to grow, stay ahead of the curve, not spend too much, not spend too little? Like it's very much a kind of much more metrics driven role at this point in time. What are the common challenges that CHROs are are facing right now or going to face in the future? I mean, we're seeing with the, the changes in the market, there has been a little bit of a shift. Like CHROs got and HR in general got a big seat at the table through COVID. That crisis was not a financial crisis. It was a humanity crisis. So HR took the lead of like, okay, how do we get people home and get everybody functional and tools and all of that? When we move into more recession mode, CFOs start taking those reins back because it becomes more financial. And so we're seeing that CHROs right now are losing some of the power that they had over the past two and a half years. Uh, and so I think it's pendulum shifting. Um, but I think that the fact that we still have a very tight labor market kind of ensures and kind of continues with a notion that HR absolutely has to be at the table and likely driving a lot of what's happening at that table. Yeah, that's that's an interesting point you made. Because back in 2008, the, the Great Recession, you were, you were a CFO, right? I was. So you probably took a lead role in just like, what are we going to do? Like, we're in a right. financial crisis right now. And I'm sure there's just a lot of things you were involved in at that time. Is this time different? I know we're not, I don't think we're technically in a recession now. Maybe we are in one. This time feels a little different. And I'm curious if like a CFO versus a CHRO, I mean, they're probably working closer together than ever. But I'm wondering if one or the other in this time takes a bigger role. What do you think? I think it needs to be more collaborative than it was in 2008. In 2008, it was all cost cutting all day long. So yes, layoffs, yes, cutting benefits, yes, cutting all kinds of things to just keep the lights on but we didn't have a tight labor market. So we didn't have to worry about, okay, as we start thinking about how to come back and what we want to go from here, we didn't have to worry about, are we going to be able to hire? And the market was different. I mean, the internet was relatively new. People weren't Googling for salaries. You know, people couldn't work anywhere in the country, if not in the world, like remote work wasn't a thing. The entire world is different now. And so we do see some CFOs going back to their 2008 playbook, but it's not going to work. We do see a lot of that, you know, HR getting pushed and like CFO is just saying, hey, we have to cut. And they're cutting a certain percentage regardless of what impact that has. That's going to backfire, in my opinion. You have to collaborate with HR on that to figure out where to cut. I so agree. Yeah, I'm even thinking of a time 
I actually started my career in 2008. And so I was sort of like, I mean, sort of naive and I'm like, what's how it's happening. I actually work inside of an HR consulting company. So we, you know, we support small and medium sized organizations. And I just remember like, you know, a lot of our consultants are like helping organizations with rifts, you know, the reduction in forces. And that's just, it's tough, right? If you just have a CFO driving everything like cost cutting, Nowadays, I think what's different, and this is just my personal opinion, I think there's a more concerted effort on the humanity of like all of our people practices. And just, I mean, when you have a reduction in force, there's, there's ripple effects to that, whether it's your culture, whether it's employees who are laid off getting on social media and like blasting, the, like there's so many things to think about now. And I think that's maybe where a CHRO, what do you think about what I'm saying? There? Oh, I totally agree with you. I think because it's not just the people who get laid off that are going to be on social media, it's the people who remain. And it's just very public. And if you do it in a way that has more humanity and does the best possible thing you can do, like people understand that there may be a point in time where something big, like a big set of rifts has to happen. We saw that with strikes, for instance. But the way they handled it was the most humane way they possibly could. They explained what happened. They took accountability for it. They did a bunch of leave and they did severance and they did all the right things for the people on that team. And then we've seen obviously other examples where that hasn't been the case. This stuff does have a ripple effect. You know, it, it impacts who you're going to be able to hire next and how people think about their job security, even if they're there. And because it's a tight labor market, even if somebody wasn't laid off, they may now have the impetus to want to go and look and see where else they could go because there's plenty of companies out there that are still hiring. Or changing up who's in what seat or whatever. And so there's there's plenty of opportunity out there if someone wants to make a move. When you think about the skill sets of people who are at the table and you, you mentioned that CHROs are now, you know, they've got that seat. They play a complementary role to everybody at the C-suite. What unique skill sets did they bring that they, they didn't have at the table before? I think before it just wasn't a very strategic role. Uh, you know, back in 2008, it was very much a functional, tactical, administrative role. And now it's very much a strategic role. So, you know, instead of just making sure that a list of things were completed, now they're actually taking a look at like, okay, what do metrics look like in these various areas of the business? How are we retaining? How are we hiring? How do we make those processes better? How do we make sure we're not and we're training up folks so that we're not discriminating against people. How do we think about compensation benchmarking? Like there's just so much more to that role than there was back in 2008. Uh, partly because not that HR back in 2008 didn't want to do that for the record too. A lot of those HR people would have loved to have been working on this, but organizations as a whole, they weren't willing to accept that HR should have that seat at the table. I think it started before COVID, where HR started getting more respect and recognition, but COVID changed everything where everyone just kind of looked to the HR team and is like, okay, now what do we do? And let HR take that leadership role, which they needed to take at that point in time. Yeah, I'm I'm hearing you talk and I'm like, how did we get here? I mean, I'm happy that we're here and the HR is a bigger function. I, I, I think people are, are so important in all of our organizations. And I'm so happy that HR now has that seat. But I'm like, what was the driving factor that now HR is a strategic function where it wasn't seen that way before? There's probably not one answer, but I'm curious what your take on that is. There's not. But I think the the corollary is to look at what happened in the marketing department. So marketing back in the day wasn't strategic either. It was, you know, the place where pretty things. No, I mean, and I mean, way back. Like, I don't mean like five yeah, years ago, right. I mean, way back. Like, 
it was where pretty things were made pretty and whatever. And it is now a fully quant operation. Like it is so metrics driven and outcomes based. And that transition took a long time as well. I think HR is only almost the exact same path. You go from having, you know, on the marketing side, you have buyer personas. On the HR side, you have employee personas. Like there's a lot of the same language happening. And so I think that transition has just been you know, new tools, new outcomes, you know, managing in a very different way based on kind of the way the world works now. So I think it's it's followed a very similar path. Do you think most employers are sort of putting resources to HR or they, they see employee engagement and, and just the people like that needs investment and now they're dedicating resources? What, what's your perspective on that? The ones that actually want to survive. Oh. Interesting. So, I mean, if you don't invest in that area, you're not going to survive because, again, very tight labor market. There's just not enough people to go around for the jobs and the types of jobs that we need to fill. So if you do not focus on that, you're going to miss the boat. The days of, you know, like not hiring an HR person until you're hundreds of people deep, like you can't do that anymore. That's not an option if you want to build a functional, viable company in the same way not having email is not a functional option in an organization either. So it's critical. So if an employer decides like, eh, I'm going to save my money, I'm not going to invest in an HR leader and just skimp on the resources there, what, what sort of things fall apart? I mean, they'll probably end up with some lawsuits because they'll probably break the laws, it's my guess. <laughs> Like, that's usually what happens. Like, and it depends on size and stage, of course. I mean, if you're a 20-person company, can you get away with not having an HR person? Probably. Or you can outsource it and you can have, like, you can augment. You don't have to have the person on your team. But you need to have somebody with that level of expertise or you end up filing all the paperwork that you need to file, not setting up in states the way you need to, not doing some of that functional piece and certainly not doing the strategic piece either. So if you need to grow rapidly and add a bunch of folks to the team, you can't do it without HR at the table, yeah. in my opinion. Since you have a CFO background, I'm curious, how does a CHRO be successful alongside of a CFO? Like, how would you work together to complement each other? Because those are they're very different roles, but I, I, I see a path forward together. And in a lot of ways, I think it's just such a breath of fresh air for a lot of CFOs. Like, I was playing both of those roles because HR didn't have the seat at the table and I was very operational. Now you have the CHRO who is the complementary person to the CFO. It's really the only two roles in an organization that sit across every department. Every other department leader is over their department. They're not sitting across the entire organization. You need to collaborate in order to figure out, all right, how do we handle this from a financial and compliance perspective and then a people and compliance perspective? So in my mind, like in the most well-run organizations, those two folks are best buds. That's where that's going to do really, really well. So if I'm a CHRO, I'm an an HR leader, and I want to make investments inside of the organization, whether it's perks and benefits or hiring plans, things like that, how do I work with my CFO to make sure I can build a proper budget? And like, how do you just recommend people approach that? Anytime you're approaching somebody in finance, you've got to be pretty metrics driven if you want to like... Feelings and, you know, wants and needs may fall on deaf ears with the finance team because they want to, they're going to get to like, what's our bottom line? What's our top line? How's this going to work? But that's where I think the collaboration can work really well too, because ultimately both have the same goal, right? They both want the organization to grow. They both want it to thrive and do all the things that it needs to do. But 
they're looking at two sides of the coin. So I think collaborating to figure out, all right, if we need X amount of revenue or we can only afford X in expenses, how do we do this together so that, you know, we can move the entire needle forward? Because there's probably things that HR is seeing that the finance team's not seeing. It's not just oh, well, we can only afford, you know, a million dollars in new expense this year. It's okay, but if that million is driving X amount more revenue, maybe you can actually afford a little bit more. Or what if you don't invest and then you've got a retention problem and that actually costs you a bunch of money that you weren't budgeting for. And so it's very much got to be collaborative. It's not just a straight numbers exercise. It's got to take the, the human capital piece into account. For HR people who might not have a background in financial statements and metrics and things like that, how do they start speaking that same language? How do they learn those skills? Honestly, I think most HR folks have some degree of that. It's not reading a P&L necessarily, but they understand like the direction of, that the business needs to go. They understand their people costs, you know, inside and out, their benefits costs, like all of that. I think to understand where that fits in the full company level picture of like, you know, do we need to launch a new product or whatever? Working with the CFO, like CFOs are happy to talk about this stuff. So more collaborative it can be, you know, understanding, okay, where do we need to go? And then HR can figure out, all right, you want X? Here's what we're going to need on Y to be able to get there and drawing that kind of line in the sand. You can't ask for X and not give me Y. Like that's the way that works. That I actually learned from somebody who ran engineering in one of my companies, my, the prior companies I worked with. He was so good at saying, oh, you want me to build that? great, I need X number of engineers. And that was it. If you didn't give it to him, it wasn't going to get filled. And he just drew that line in the sand. I was like, how do you do that? Like, how are you just getting the money? Yeah. And then I realized like every department can do that. Like you need to be reasonable. You need to not sandbag or ask for too much and all of that. But if you have reasonable things and people know and trust you, you're going to get what you need. And so I think it's it's that collaboration. So we, we've talked about how organizations who want to survive, they're investing in HR and the people. So for employee engagement, what sort of things are you seeing that organizations like successful ones, the ones that are keeping people, they're attracting, retaining and all that, what are they investing in right now? So I think the first thing they need to look at is obviously making sure their salaries are competitive. I mean, that's the first thing out of the gate and competitive within your competitive set. It doesn't mean we all have to compete with Amazon and Google for what we pay for for people. So what your relative competitive company set is. If you're competitive on salaries, then making sure that health insurance is the right place as well. If you're going cheap on that, employees are going to notice. And then after that, it's, all right, what else are you doing in this last, you know, usually 20% of compensation? That's where employees usually look at, you know, all kinds of employee perks. And what we find is that a lot of the strategies that were attempted and kind of came up organically just don't work for the finance team in particular, but also for employees. You know, you bring in all this bag of stuff and no matter what the employee perk is, if you're lucky, 5% of the team uses it, which makes finance really grumpy because they're like, why are we spending money on things nobody's using? <laughs> makes employees really grumpy because they're like, but I don't want that. Why can't I have something else? And so this is where I think HR has a real opportunity to figure out, all right, how do we get to personalization? Because that's what the best employees are doing is figuring out how do we meet every single person's needs? But without being parents, like it's not our role to be parental in an organization. What we need to do is empower our team, but align that with our culture. Is our culture focused on wellness or family or whatever the thing is? How do we align these two things, but allow for that employee personalization at the same time? That's a million dollar question. How do you personalize it? Like, what, how are you asking people about it? How are you evaluating what things might fit, uh, budget, all that? 
I mean, so we have thoughts, obviously, because that's what we do. <laughs> Love to hear them. Yeah. And there are other there are other approaches, of course. You know, part of the reason I started Comped was to answer that very question because I was frustrated in my prior companies because I had the revolving door of employees who were pretty grumpy about the things that we were offering that we needed to make that scale. And the answer for me is to stop trying to read every person's mind, stop trying to figure out what's going to make every single person happy. A lot of people also just don't want to share their needs and wants down to a granular level with their employer. And I don't blame them. Like the whole point here is to treat employees like adults and allow them to personalize in a way that matters to them. So one way to do that would be lifestyle spending accounts or employee perk stipends where you say, hey, as an organization, we're going to offer you 100 bucks this quarter to spend on wellness. But as an employee, you can spend it where you want. I don't care if you're living in Fargo or Miami or Oakland or wherever else in between. You can go spend at whatever provider you want for your wellness and mental health app, you know, running shoes, gym, personal trainer, like maybe it's a healthy meal delivery. I don't know. I'm not your wellness professional. You should be working with a wellness professional, but I'm willing to support that. So it allows for that level of personalization. Yeah. So do you think long-term, if employers are really in tune to what their employees want, they're asking the questions, like, what do you need? And then finding solutions like that? Uh, I don't think you can ask, honestly. Like, I don't think you'll ever get the right level of answers. Interesting. Here's the data piece for you. So we actually took a sample last year. We took 8,700 people on our platform because we had over 91% engagement. So normal employee perks is like 5%. We've got off the charge engagement, meaning 91% of people on our platform use their perks and said, all right, how many different vendors did 8,700 people use in 12 months? Because that's what you would have to go and figure out as an organization to pull all that stuff in. Guess how many different vendors they used in that time period? I, I, for some reason, I'm thinking it's like a handful of, it's not a huge number. 27,000. Oh, okay. Never mind. That's a lot. Right. So you can't ask your employees and say, oh, what do you want? It's impossible. On average, every person wants three different things. And so you have to move away from, oh, let me just survey people and find out what they want. You're never going to find out the truth and what's going to move the needle. And that's just an exhausting exercise. That's not going to get the, it's not going to get the job done. So instead, you say, we support wellness or family or just here's a bundle of things that you could have. You go find it. You go do what you want to do. This is fantastic. Like, and so HR doesn't have to be playing that role and employees are just a lot happier as well. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I think what most employers probably do is they, they're like, you know, they might ask their employees, they give them some vanilla answer about, oh, yeah, we want gym memberships. And it's like, okay, here's a Planet Fitness 24-hour, whatever, right? And it's like, but it's one vendor. It's like, here, you're stuck. What you're describing is like, no, just give them a $100 stipend and then you go figure out what you want. Because I mean, you'd have to want to go to that gym. You'd have to have access to that gym. Like even, so I'm based in Boston. If you pulled a gym, like you can pick any gym. I've got one in my building. Like I don't want one of the gyms in the city. Why would I commute to a gym when there's literally one in my building that I don't go to, by the way? So that's not what I want. Instead of trying to do that, just say you want to support wellness and then you can sell parameters on it. Like this isn't meant to be like, hey, you can also, you know, get a bottle of champagne. It's meant to be for wellness. Like you can put that structure in place, but treat employees like adults and let them manage their own wellness journey because that's just not HR's job. Mm -hmm. Let's bring this conversation back full circle where we started, which is, you know, who's going to be taking CEO level positions long term? Do you see as HR becomes more strategic, organizations are so people centric now, I think we're more in tune to what people want more than ever. Do you see CHROs 
long-term taking on the CEO role? I do. I think it started happening in some organizations. There's been, I mean, that article that you referenced, like we are starting to see that, but I'm seeing it at a board level as well. And you start seeing CHROs on boards. There's usually, you know, not long after that, you know, we saw CFOs go onto boards and then we started seeing CFOs as CEOs. I'm seeing the same thing with CHROs as well, where they're getting tapped a lot more frequently to be at the board level. And so I do think that's going to be a pretty, I mean, it's just a logical path to CEO in my mind. The group of people who understand how to move the entire team in the right direction would be a logical leader of a company. Amy, this has been a really fun conversation. Uh, Any parting thoughts or do you want to point people to comp anything like that? Sure. So if folks are interested in learning more, they can certainly check out our website, compt.io, that's C-O-M-P-T.io. Or if you feel like chatting, you know, you can always reach out to me as well, uh, amy at comp.io. Amy Sperling, thanks for coming on the podcast. Appreciate you. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed are the guest's own and do not represent the views, thoughts, and opinions of Zenium HR or the host, Brandon Laws. The material and information presented on Transform Your Workplace is for general information and educational purposes only. Zenium HR or the host, Brandon Laws, does not necessarily endorse any guest, their business, or any organization they represent. Discretion is advised. Please work with a trusted advisor to find a custom approach that fits your organization's needs.